Good evening. It's very good to be with you all. Um, yes, this evening we are going to be continuing our series in the book of Genesis, or that latter part of Genesis, the story of Joseph. And so please do open your Bibles uh, to the passage that was read for us earlier on to Genesis 48, if we're going to be working through this next chapter this evening. And as Simon explained to us last week, Genesis is a book that is full of promises. And to this point in the book, the promises have been given, the promises have been explained. Um, But now as we move into these very last chapters of Genesis, the last chapters of the Joseph story, we're beginning to see these promises fulfilled. We're seeing the fulfillment of what had been promised and proclaimed to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and um, Joseph as well. And so here in chapter 48, we're going to continue to see those promises fulfilled as we work through this, this chapter this evening. Those promises being fulfilled in the sense of the, the covenant promises initially given to Abraham being passed on from one generation to the other, now being passed on from Joseph's Joseph to his family, to his children, and then on. And so that's, that's sort of the context with which we're coming in to this passage. Now, the details of chapter 48 of Genesis are told by Moses in the context of Jacob's impending death. We read in chapter 47, verses 28 and 29, that Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When, it, when the time for Israel, who is Jacob, to die drew near. So this is the context, the time for Jacob to die is drawing near. It is now time for Jacob to die after living what would be considered by any standard a remarkable life. Jacob's death indicates that the blessing of God is going to pass on from one generation to another. Just as the covenantal promises had been passed on from Abraham to Isaac and from Isaac to Jacob. Now Jacob will pass these same promises on to his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now the phrase in chapter 48 and verse 1, the phrase with which this chapter opens, now it came about after these things, serves as a break in the narrative. A considerable amount of time had probably passed, perhaps as much as a whole year, Uh, Between the events of chapter 47, Jacob and his family settling in Goshen, the famine in Egypt, Joseph promising Jacob not to bury him in Egypt. Those events took place probably a year before the beginning of what we read in chapter 48. And our commentators point out that the blessing we find in the next chapter, chapter 49, almost overshadows the blessing that we read about here in chapter 48. So we have two blessings. We have this initial blessing of Joseph's sons, and then we have another blessing of the rest of Jacob's sons in chapter 49. And the reason that chapter 49 could be seen to almost overshadow chapter 48 is because Judah, one of Jacob's 12 sons, receives the blessing. And it is through the line of Judah that David and ultimately the Messiah would come. And so the foretelling of Messiah, which we find in chapter 49, carries a certain significance that the blessing of Benjamin, um, sorry, of Manasseh and Ephraim in chapter 48 doesn't. But be that as it may, there is still a great deal to learn from what is written here in chapter 48. 
The promises in chapter 49 by no means detract from the profit of studying the blessing given to Joseph and his sons. And so thinking in terms of a bit of a structure for the chapter, just to orient our thinking, chapter 48 can be easily broken down into three sections. From verses 1 to 12, Joseph visits Jacob. From verses 13 to 20, Jacob blesses Joseph and his sons. And in verses 21 to 22, that final part of the chapter, Jacob promises Joseph land. So we have a visit, a blessing, and a promise. So Jacob visits Joseph, or Joseph visits Jacob, sorry, verses 1 and two. Now, as I've already said, a considerable amount of time passes between the end of chapter 47 and the beginning of chapter 48. That statement now, after these things came to pass, indicates a passing probably of an entire year. Upon hearing that Jacob is ill and drawing near to his death, Joseph leaves Pharaoh's residence and goes to the land of Goshen to see his father. He brings his two sons, Manasseh, and Ephraim with him. And it is worth noting that Joseph's sons are not young boys at this point. The language that we find later on in the chapter in verse 16, when we read, bless the lads, um, might lead us to believe that they were still only children. Uh, But in reality, they were probably in their early 20s at this point. In chapter 47 and 28, we read that Jacob had already been in Egypt for 17 years given that Jacob arrived in Egypt in the third year of the famine um, and that Joseph's sons had been born before the famine, it is more reasonable to see Joseph's sons at this point in the narrative as young men in their late teens or early 20s. Um, And there's nothing in verses and one or two that suggests that Jacob actually knew that Manasseh and Ephraim were coming. There's nothing that suggests that Joseph would bring his sons Uh, Jacob is simply told, behold, your son Joseph has come to you. But it was this information alone, however, that caused Jacob to momentarily revive his strength and sit up in his bed. And I think what is being emphasized here is the special bond that Jacob and Joseph had. Joseph was the first son that Rachel, the woman who Jacob loved more deeply than her sister Leah, bore to him. This special affection was demonstrated through the favor that uh, Jacob showed Joseph as he was growing up in front of his his elder brothers. And this favoritism, such as Jacob giving Joseph that special coat back in chapter 37, provoked the jealousy of the elder brothers. Jealousy which commenced a long and dramatic series of events which ended up with Joseph being ruler in Egypt. And back in chapter 37 and verse 3, we read, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and the son that Rachel bore to him. And so this special affection which Jacob had for Joseph endured over many years. It endured even during a long period of absence while Joseph was in Egypt and separated from his family. So rather than any mention of grandchildren in uh, verse 2 of chapter 48, we simply read of Jacob, Joseph's father, and Joseph, Jacob's son. Their being together was enough for a frail old man to regain his strength and embrace the son whom he loved 
so dearly. And now I was, I suppose, reflecting on this, trying to find something, you know, practical, something of application to take from this. You know, is, is there anything that we can take from these first two verses? Well, I think all the turbulence of the past years and decades had not been able to break the bond of, aff- of affection between this father and son. Oftentimes, we find our relationships strained because of the pressures and because of the stresses of life. We live in a fallen world in which sinful creatures are constantly bumping up against one another. Relationships become strained. It's the reality of life. And Joseph and Jacob knew this all too well. Yet, not only was Joseph able to forgive and embrace his brothers who mistreated him, he also still loved his father from whom he had been taken. And his father still loved him. It is a reminder to us that we do not have to let illness or the passage of time or the stresses of life rob us of the love we have for those closest to us. Times change, countries and locations change, and of course, people themselves change. And even if our loved ones are far away from us for a long time, the love and affection we have for them can still, can still remain. And now as we move on to, um, through verses 3 to 7, in these verses, as the narrative continues, we have Jacob's formal adoption of, of Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as his own sons, as Jacob's own sons. Now, this adoption is parenthesized by two allusions to Jacob's past. We read of God's reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob at Luz in verse 3. And then we read of Rachel's death and her burial at Ephra or Bethlehem in verse 7. So let's break this down. The first thing to consider is the significance of Jacob's adoption of Joseph's sons. In verse 5, Jacob states that Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Joseph's two sons are raised to a position of prominence equal to that of Jacob's two eldest sons, Reuben and Simeon. Now, this is not a random selection of two names among all of Jacob's sons. The blessing reserved for the eldest son is now being passed on. As one commentator writes, the prominence of Jacob's eldest two sons was being transferred to these two adopted sons. As we go further through the Old Testament, we find a reference to this adoption again. In 1 Chronicles 5 and verse 1, uh, under the descendants of Reuben, as all the descendants are being named um, in 1 Chronicles, we read the following. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the eldest son. So Reuben's sin, through which he forfeited his firstborn privilege, um, this sin was the reason that he lost his birthright, and then it's referenced again in chapter, in chapter 49. And so we see here the adoption of Benjamin and Ephraim, in a sense, filling the void which Reuben's sin had created. Joseph's sons could inherit God's blessings from Jacob without the defilement which Reuben's immorality had caused. So Jacob's choice to adopt 
Joseph's sons, and transfer the firstborn blessing to them in Reuben and Simeon's place is not random by any means, nor is his reference to Rachel's death in verse 7. Joseph was the first son that Rachel bore, Jacob. God's covenantal blessing is now being carried on through the son who came through Rachel. Some scholars suggest that the reference to Rachel here in verse 7 is there simply to give expression to Jacob's enduring love and affection for his deceased wife. As he passes on this blessing to Joseph's sons, he cannot but help remember Joseph's mother, who he loved so dearly. That would be one way of of looking at this. Um, Perhaps it's even the same favoritism which Jacob had previously shown to Joseph. And yes, there may be some truth to this, but I think the real reason we have the reference to Rachel is to remind us of God's unwavering faithfulness to his covenant promises. Although Rachel's line was cut short, it still continues through her son, Joseph. Rachel will now be accredited with, accredited with four sons, not two. The covenantal promises of God are still being fulfilled through Rachel's line, even after her death. As we read through the Old Testament, we see that Ephraim and Manasseh, um, become, their names become synonymous with the northern kingdom. They then become deeply divided against the southern kingdom of Judah after the monarchy fractures. But we see throughout the Old Testament from this point how that line uh, grows and develops and, and strengthens because God's promises are being continued through Rachel's line. And so let's step back and consider what we are seeing here. We are seeing the fulfillment of God's promises in the midst of life's turbulence. Reuben sinned. Rachel died. Jacob himself wrestled with God and fled in fear of his life from Esau as he received the blessing mentioned in verse 3. But Jacob is presenting here to Joseph and to Joseph's sons and to us today a God who is relentlessly faithful to his promises. A God who, amid the trouble and difficulty of life, always fulfills his promises with an unwavering faithfulness. And this is something that we all need to be reminded of as we embark upon a new year. We need to be reminded again of the same God who Jacob came to know and trust through all the twists and turns of his life, a faithful, promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. Does this mean that that financial problem will definitely be solved? Does it mean that that relationship will definitely be reconciled? Will that illness definitely be cured? Well, these things may or may not happen. We can certainly pray that they will, but when we think about the promises of God, that doesn't mean that every issue in our lives will be resolved necessarily as we want it to be. It means that we trust a God who is sovereign to fulfill his plans and his way and his time in each of our lives. It means that we remember the promises of God routinely and apply them to our own lives. As Christians now living in the the New Testament era, we have the promise of peace. In John 14, 27, Jesus promised um, that he would give us his peace and that we would know that peace in the midst 
of every circumstance. We have the promise of eternal life through the finished work of Christ. We have the promise of God's presence with us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the promise of Christ's return and the hope of righteousness and justice on the earth when he comes. We have the promise that even in our own lives, God is working all things together for good as we walk with him day by day. So like Jacob, let us learn to trust in a God who is sovereign and who fulfills his promises even in the turbulence of our daily lives. So we're still in the section of Joseph visiting Jacob. And let's just take a quick look now at verses 8 to 12. Before we close this first uh, section, let's just focus in on these verses. In verse 8, we read Jacob asking regarding the children he's about to adopt, Joseph's children. Who are these? Referring to Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, Jacob may be asking this because of his failing eyesight mentioned in verse 10, or as a formal initiation of the blessing ceremony that is about to take place. Now, in verse 12, Joseph then removes uh, his children from his knees and bows towards the ground. This is seemingly in preparation for the blessing that Jacob uh, is going to give the children. However, it is what Jacob says in verse 11 that I want to focus on before moving on to look at the blessing itself. It is something that one could very easily skip over when reading the narrative, but it is worth digging into. In the previous verses, verses three to seven, the emphasis is on God's faithfulness. God was faithful to fulfill his covenant promises to Jacob despite the sin of his firstborn son and death of his wife, Rachel. As Ephraim and Manasseh are presented to Jacob here in verse 8 to 12, we see an emphasis on God's goodness and on his grace. This is particularly clear in verse 11. Read with me again verse 11. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. God has been so good and so gracious to Jacob that he not only allows him to see Joseph, his, uh, his son who he lost so many years ago, um, who he thought was dead, but God allows Jacob to see his grandchildren as well. Now, there is an important literary device being used here that we should not miss. The image of an elderly, blind, dying man blessing his children has already shown up in Genesis Back in chapter 27, we read about the time when Jacob disguised himself as Esau to trick his father Isaac, who was also elderly, blind, and dying. He tricked him into blessing him and giving him the birthright. So consider the contrast between the two incidents. In chapter 27, we have deceitful Jacob seizing his, his brother's uh, birthright through, through trickery, in chapter 48, we have faithful Joseph. Rather than deceiving an elderly, blind, and dying man, Joseph is a pillar of faithfulness and piety before God. Joseph, far from being a deceiver or a trickster, received God's blessing through his obedience. Yet, it is Jacob, the one-time deceiver, who is overwhelmed by God's grace and goodness towards him. I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. This frail 
dying man, once took advantage of a frail, dying man, but now he is a recipient of God's abundant grace as he embraces his sons and his grandsons. Now, ever since the canon of Scripture was compiled, there have been people who want to separate the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. It started uh, with a man called Marcion. These people argue that the Old and New Testaments essentially present two different gods. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment, and the God of the New Testament, as shown in the person of Jesus Christ, is a God, a God of love. Now, besides being overly simplistic and theologically disastrous, this is just plain wrong. The Old Testament is replete with examples of God's grace. It begins with the promise of salvation after the fall, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, and continues all the way through to the end of the Minor Prophets. The Old Testament is full of examples of God's grace, and Genesis 48.11 is one of them. Jacob made no assumption that God would allow him to see his son again, let alone his grandchildren. This was an act of God's undeserved and unmerited grace. Jacob marveled at it, but he did not presume upon it because he knew his own sin. And perhaps this is the message that you need to hear today, that God is a God of grace. He is gracious even towards schemers and liars like Jacob. Maybe you think that there is no hope for you before God. You think that he would never forgive the sin you have committed. You think that there could not possibly be redemption for you. But see here that God is a God of grace. See that God delights to show grace to those who wrong him and wrong others the most. People like Jacob, people like me and you. In fact, the whole gospel message can be summed up in this word, grace. Paul writes to the Ephesians in those very well-known words, for grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And you can receive this free gift of salvation today if you repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ as God's son and the only savior, you can't, like Jacob, be marveled at God's grace towards you. He is a God of grace who desires to extend his grace to those who come humbly to him. So Joseph has visited Jacob. Now Jacob is going to bless Joseph and his sons. So focusing now verses 13 down to verse 20. We've looked at Joseph visiting Jacob. Now let's consider the blessing itself, which Jacob gives to Joseph and his sons. Now I say Joseph and his sons, because in verse 15, we read, and he blessed Joseph. And so this was a blessing given to Joseph by Jacob, which included and would extend um, to Joseph's children. After bowing before Jacob and preparing to receive his blessing, Joseph gives his two sons over to Jacob. He placed Manasseh, the eldest son, at Jacob's right side so he could bless him with his right hand, uh, indicating Manasseh's prominence as a firstborn. Then he placed Ephraim, the younger son, at Jacob's left side so he could bless the younger with his 
left hand. However, in an unexpected move, Jacob crosses his hands so that he ends up placing his right hand on Ephraim, thereby blessing him as if he were the firstborn son. All of this is to Joseph's consternation and confusion as he removes Jacob's hand from Ephraim's head to put it on Manasseh's and says in verse 18, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. Jacob, however, knew exactly what he was doing. In verse 19, Jacob explains why he reversed the blessing. He says, I know, my son, I know. He, being Manasseh, also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother, Ephraim, shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall be a multitude of nations. And so Jacob reversed the blessing as a way of indicating that Ephraim, not Manasseh, would be the more dominant of the two tribes going forward. And Jacob's prophecy that Ephraim would be dominant over Manasseh, his elder brother, proved to be true throughout Israel's history. Ephraim's dominance was such that sometimes the ten northern tribes over and against the southern tribe, the royal tribe of Judah, are simply referred to as Ephraim. For example, in Isaiah chapter 7, the name Ephraim is used four times uh, to designate the, the ten northern tribes. And so we read again in verse 20, and more, one more definitive comment given by the author, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh, the younger brother, receiving favor and blessing older over the older. And this is a recurring theme throughout Genesis. Isaac was favored over Ishmael and received the covenantal blessing because he was a son of promise who came through Sarah. Jacob received the birthright instead of Esau also, although Esau was the firstborn. Joseph was favored by Jacob in a special way rather than his 10 older brothers. Now Ephraim is favored over his older brother, Manasseh. And so it is good to step back and ask, why is this the case? To step back and consider what the Holy Spirit is wanting to tell us through this motif of the younger being blessed and favored over the older. Now, just as we saw God's grace in verse 11, when Jacob marveled at seeing both his son and his grandsons, I believe we are also supposed to see something of God's grace in this motif. Entering into God's blessing and receiving his favor is not something which depends on bloodline, family lineage, or birth order. God's inheritance is something that he chooses to give according to his sovereign grace. In the words of one commentator, throughout these narratives, receiving the blessing God offers does not rest with one's natural status or rights. On the contrary, that blessing is based solely on God's grace. The one to whom the blessing does not belong by natural right becomes heir of the promise. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and now Ephraim were all recipients of God's grace. What was not theirs by right, they received according to the sovereign grace of God. And I find in this a wonderful reminder of our salvation. Every Christian has received an inheritance from God, 
Peter describes it, and we considered this last week, Simon referenced it, um, as an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, 1 Peter 1.4. And this is the greatest inheritance that we could ever have. And yet, this is not an inheritance that we have any right or claim to. We were adrift from God and under his condemnation because of our sin. The last thing that any of us deserve is to share in the inheritance of eternal life. In fact, we deserve the opposite, death and hell and judgment for our sin. And yet, as I've just quoted from 1 Peter, you, if you're a Christian, have received this inheritance. Maybe you feel that you don't deserve God's love or favor or blessing. Well, you're right. You don't deserve any of these things, nor do I, nor does anybody else. None of us have any right or any claim to it, yet God in his infinite grace calls undeserving sinners to share in the promises of his inheritance. If we go forward into the New Testament, see how Paul describes this grace God has shown to us. A bit of a lengthy quotation, but it really crystallizes what we're thinking about here. In Galatians chapter 4, 1 to 7, Paul writes the following. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Adopted sons and heirs of God This is the essence of our salvation and the wonder of God's grace towards us. Although like Isaac and Jacob and Ephraim, we have no claim or right to these things, God has been pleased to grant them to us. God has called us to share in his glorious inheritance wherever we are from, whatever our background, whatever our age, if we are in Christ. Now, I also want to mention the blessing itself, which is found in verses 15 and 16. We have the promise that Joseph's two sons will share in covenantal blessings, those given to Abraham and Isaac, and that they would grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And so this is going to continue. These blessings are going to keep multiplying through Joseph's line. We also have more references to Jacob's past experiences with God, The most obscure of these is Jacob's reference in verse 16 to the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. The angel. Now, commentators are split over who Jacob is referencing here and because it's referenced in the context of the God of Israel, yet an angel. I think um, in light of the immediate context, as well as other Old Testament references, that here Jacob is speaking about the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is a figure who appears throughout the Old Testament as a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, 
That is simply an appearance of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, before he came to earth as a man in the New Testament. Um, this would be why the NIV, for example, capitalizes the A in the angel, because it's a, it's a reference to deity. And this may even be a reference back to Genesis 31, 11 to 13, where the angel of God appeared to Jacob when he was fleeing from his cruel uncle Laban. Um, and so this really gives expression to God's protection and care over Jacob throughout his life. Jacob also uses the imagery of God as a shepherd, verse 15. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. God being Israel's shepherd, Israel in the sense of the nation, not Jacob's new, new name, is a theme that is repeated throughout the Old Testament. But interestingly, this is the first time in the Old Testament that God is described as a shepherd, the first time. Now back in chapter 47 and verse 9, Jacob looked back and had these rather pessimistic words to say. The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of my years, of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And so this is a fairly bleak summary of Jacob's life. However, Jacob takes a very different view of the years of his sojourning here in chapter 48. When he sees Joseph and his grandsons, Jacob is reminded of how God has been and is a faithful shepherd to him. As he inches towards the end of his life, he's reminded of God's shepherding care. Now maybe, like Jacob, you too are growing older. You now have many years and decades to look back on. Will you view those years as long and troublesome like Jacob did in chapter 47? Or do you look back and see God's shepherding care? Can you look back over all those years, over all the ups and downs, and see God's faithful shepherding hand? I trust that if you are a Christian, the answer to that question is a resounding yes. And you can look back over all the time that has passed and be joyful that the Lord has kept you and sustained you. Or perhaps you have not yet reached old age, but you have an uncertain future ahead of you. Perhaps all you can see ahead are years of trouble and toil and worry. Don't forget that God is your shepherd. He will be with you whatever you encounter this year and in the years after that. You can be confident that there will come a time when you look back and give thanks to the God who has been your shepherd all your life long to this day. But yet the most intriguing part of the blessing for me really comes at the beginning of it. Jacob speaks in verse 15 again of the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. We see the phrase, my, father, my fathers Abraham and Isaac, again in the second half of the blessing as it comes to an end, emphasizing how Jacob was continuing on the same pilgrimage of faith in God's covenant promises as his predecessors did. However, it is the word walk which really caught my attention as I was thinking about this and preparing the message. 
the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. Now, it is interesting how the verb walk is used in connection to God's covenant promises throughout the Old Testament. Um, Listen to what Moses says to the people of Israel as he is preparing them to enter into the land of promise. In Deuteronomy 30, 15 and 16, Moses says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. So walking with God in light of these covenantal promises. We have similar language in Micah, uh, chapter 6 and verse 8, where we read about what God expects from his covenant people. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. When Abraham initially received God's covenant promise, and was commanded by God to honor that promise through circumcision, we see similar language again, Genesis 17, 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly, walking with God and understanding his covenantal promises. So this is a recurring theme in relation to God's covenant people. And you will notice from these three references that walking with God has everything to do with our devotion to him. It picks a close and flourishing relationship with God marked by obedience to his commandments. Those who take seriously the promises of God are those who walk in faithful and humble obedience before him. And this was not just a commandment for Old Testament patriarchs like like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is a command for us today as New Testament believers. We are those who have received all the promises of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are the true circumcision, as Paul explains in Colossians 2.11. Therefore, in the same chapter of the same book, the apostle Paul instructs believers, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, and we can say, with every promise in him, so walk in him. Does this describe you? Are you someone who walks with God? Do you experience his presence? Do you know the fellowship of his spirit? Do you see his plans and purposes being fulfilled in your life? That is what the Bible and Christianity offers. Nothing less than walking with God. And this is not merely knowledge about God, nor is it an interest in religious things, nor is it a psychological or spiritual exercise trying to connect with the divine. No, this is knowing the only true God and walking with him on a daily basis. Anything less than this, something so wonderful and exhilarating is less than the true Christian experience. So can your life be described like this? Do you walk with God? If you're a Christian and the Spirit of God is present and active within you, is there anything more precious to us 
than to walk with God? Is there anything that moves us, that thrills us, that comforts us more than knowing that we walk with the creator of heaven and earth? If there is, it simply indicates that we have not fully understood how great a blessing we have received in Christ. For it is through him and through his finished work on the cross that we have entered into such a relationship with the living God that we can walk with him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We are those who have become sons and daughters of the Most High God who know him and who walk with him. This is the highest privilege we can have as human beings, to walk with God just like Adam did before the fall. So what is more precious to us and what will bring us more joy and what will bring us a greater blessing than to walk with this covenant-keeping, promise-fulfilling, unrelentlessly faithful God? Now, very finally, verses 21 and 22, chapter 48, here draws to a close with a promise that God will bring Jacob's descendants into the promised land. Let's just read together. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the land of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. And so we have uh, one more promise made here to, to Joseph, the inheritance of this land, a piece of land, a mountain slope, which Jacob took from the, the Amorites. Now, this is a little bit ambiguous. There is no clear consensus among commentators about what Jacob is referencing here. Um, but the most compelling view, at least in my judgment, is as follows. Scholars point out that the Hebrew word mountain slope perhaps portion or ridge, depending on the English translation of your Bible, in verse 22, is also the name of a city named Shechem. Shechem is the Hebrew word for a mountain slope and for the name of the city where Joseph would be buried. Joseph's burial is recorded in Joshua 24, 32, where the bones of Joshua are brought up by the people of Israel and they buried them at Shechem. And this became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. So there is a strong case to be made that Jacob is referring to the city of Shechem in the promised land where Joseph's bones would eventually be uh, brought when the Israelites entered, according to Joshua 24, 32. The intriguing thing, however, is that Jacob says he took this land from the Amorites with his sword and bow, in other words, the land was taken by force or violence. Now, that is not very characteristic of a man like Jacob, who is described earlier in Genesis as a man who is quiet, staying among tents. This was in contrast to the more rough and ready Esau, who enjoyed hunting in the outdoors. Therefore, this is most likely a reference back to Genesis 34. In Genesis 34, we find the horrific story of when Dinah, Jacob's daughter through Leah, was violated, and her brothers Simeon and Levi retaliate by plundering an entire city and killing all its male inhabitants. That city was called Shechem, also the name of the man who violated Dinah. So, 
trying to put all of those pieces together. When Jacob says he took this land, the city of Shechem, by sword and bow, he is most likely referring to Simeon and Levi. He is not speaking as one who committed, much less condoned the act, but as the patriarch of the household that did. Therefore, Simeon and Levi are denied the inheritance of Shechem because of their violence. And we'll see that again um, in chapter 49. And that is given instead to Joseph and his descendants. Just as Reuben forfeited his birthright because of his sexual immorality, so Simeon and Levi forfeited the inheritance of Shechem. And it is passed to Joseph and his descendants. Now, having put that jigsaw together, what is the application of this for us? Is this just a piece of historical trivia? Or has God put this detail in his word to tell us something? Well, once more, Joseph is receiving special favor from Jacob over his elder brothers. And we see the consequences of the elder brother's sin once more. Joseph's faithfulness is being honored and his brother's violence is being condemned, albeit implicitly in this, pa- in this verse. Simeon and Levi, they, they saw an injustice, but they reacted with brutal violence. Joseph after all the injustice which he suffered at the hands of his own brothers and others, did not react, never reacted, in a sinful way. When Joseph's brothers came to him in Egypt, he could have had them wiped out as swiftly as Simeon and Levi stormed the city of Shechem and killed every man. Yet, this was not Joseph's response. In the face of injustice, Joseph surrendered to the sovereign purposes of God and was abundantly blessed for doing so. God honors obedience. He honors those who obediently yield to his sovereign plan, even in the face of injustice. And not as passive bystanders, but as faithful slaves, who, as Peter describes, humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. This is the attitude exemplified most clearly by Christ himself, As he was led to the cross, he did not open his mouth or retaliate, but entrusted himself to him who judges justly. But on the other hand, if we are rash and angry and impulsive when we see injustice or experience it ourselves, then we won't be honored by God. Now, it is hard to imagine an injustice as horrible as a young woman in your family being violated like Dinah was, yet Simeon and Levi were not honored for their retaliation. And this becomes more clear in chapter 49. It appears that pride and anger and bloodlust fueled the brothers' actions in Shechem more than anything else. If we act hastily and angrily against injustice, if we forget that God is both sovereign and just, and that he will one day put right every wrong, then we will not honor God nor will he honor us. And so may we be like Joseph instead, learning to trust and obey God in the face of injustice, rather than Simeon and Levi, who took matters into their own hands and did so with disastrous consequences, not only to those in that city, but to themselves and to their own descendants. And so, in conclusion, in this chapter we have seen a visit, a blessing, and Very lastly, a promise of land um, with relation to Shechem. 
although it will be Judah through whom the Messiah comes, and we'll see that next week, this earlier blessing upon Joseph and his children is full of rich theology and important reminders of what it means to walk with God and to trust his promises. We've seen a God who is faithful to fulfill all his promises despite life's turbulence. We have seen a God who is full of grace, who gives a glorious inheritance to those who have no right or claim to it. We've been reminded that those who God blesses are those who walk with him. Those who take the covenant promises of God with the greatest seriousness are those who devote their lives in humble obedience to him. God will always honor obedience, but this obedience neither honors him nor invites his honor upon our own lives. And so may God, by his own spirit, give us grace to understand and apply to ourselves the riches found in this chapter. Um, let us pray, and I'm going to invite the band up to sing our final hymn. So let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for all that we've seen in your word tonight. Um, much more, undoubtedly, that could be explored, much more that could be reflected on and said, but Father, we thank you that what your uh, Spirit has drawn us to understand and think about this evening, and we do pray for grace to apply these things. Lord, to remember that you are faithful, to apply your promises to our own lives. Lord, grace to walk faithfully with you, even when the future is uncertain or life is turbulent. Lord, grace not to act with violence or with anger at injustice, but to be like Joseph and to humble ourselves under your sovereign purposes. Lord, there's so much to take from this passage. So as we go out this week, help us to be applying it to our own lives and just give us your grace now as we depart throughout the next of this week. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's stand to sing our final hymn as we've been reflecting again this evening, Great is Thy Faithfulness.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thank you.